pray together. Father God, it is a joy to gather together with your people to worship this morning. God, we thank you uh, for a great women's retreat, uh, safe travel home. Thank you for sustaining the dads while their wives were away. God, we pray that, that the women's time was fruitful in your word and fellowship, that bonds were built and grown, and that you were glorified through it all. And we pray this morning that you would continue to unite us as your people through your word and your spirit, that your glory might resound from our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning. Good job, dads. Well done. This is my, my favorite Sunday morning to sit in my normal chair out there and just watch the kids' hair as, as dads bring them in. Uh, I used to take pictures and actually text the moms, but I've stopped doing that. Uh, no more shaming. But we're here. I uh, hope you ladies all had a great time. And we have one more week before we dive into the book of First Timothy, which means this is one of those rare occasions where I just get to preach whatever I want obviously from the Bible, but I just get to pick. So this morning I want to spend some time walking through Hebrews chapter 10, uh, particularly verses 19 through 25. It is this text that we reference often, but I want to spend some time and just slow down in this text today. And ultimately what my hope is for us, uh, not just this morning, but as a community pursuing faithfulness to God is that we would continue to see more clearly the fullness of who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ and that we would be moved to worship. And, and I'm not just talking about being moved to singing on Sunday. I'm talking about a type of worship, as we'll see in our text today, that flows from a transformed heart and moves us to transformed affections and actions and ultimately a transformed community. This is what God wants for you and this is what God is calling us to here in Hebrews chapter 10. It's a call to worship God for who he is and what he has done and a call to let that reality bring an unwavering hope in our hearts that drives us to invest deeply in the lives of others. So I want to begin this morning with a little bit of background on Hebrews and what's kind of ironic or providential um, is that I had this sermon mostly written before Justin came and preached last week and yet if you remember he closed out with this very book and chapter, five verses from where we are starting. So he set us up well for this morning. But... Uh, as the name of the book kind of gives away, the book was written to Hebrews, to the cultural Jews of the first century, and the purpose of this book is to show that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And what the writer does for the first nine and a half chapters of this book leading up to our text today is construct a detailed case for Christ as the mediator of a new covenant as Savior and Lord, as the end of the Old Covenant system of sacrifices and priests, because He is the final perfect sacrifice. 
He is the perfect high priest, and through him we have been reconciled with God. We now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And as we read last week in chapter 10, verses 10 through 14, it said, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is a powerful text. And this is the crux of the first nine and a half chapters of this book. The writer lays out the foundation of who Jesus is, that he has satisfied the law. He is the final perfect sacrifice, the mediator of a new covenant through his sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection. And now in verses 19 through 21, the writer is going to summarize everything he said thus far and then call us to respond to this truth. Starting in verse 19, we read, Therefore, so in light of all that Christ has accomplished, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Those are two epic statements. This is what the writer has been laying out this entire book. Since we can confidently enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we no longer need priests and sacrifices to come before God, since Jesus is now our mediator and intercessor, because of everything Christ has done and everything Christ is now for us, Here's our response. Here's how we move forward in light of the finished work of Christ. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near. Let us draw near. That's another way of saying, Let us worship. The throne room of God is open to us because Christ has broken down the hostility between us and God and made a way for us to enter in to an intimate relationship with our Creator God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, It's easy to misread this text. As though the way that we draw near in worship is by by striving to attain this true heart or or seeking to have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our, our bodies washed pure. But that's not what this text is saying. That would be a fundamental misunderstanding of both this text and the gospel. The call of this text is to draw near, to worship God in full assurance of faith that these things have already been attained for you through the blood of Jesus. 
The first nine and a half chapters have made that clear. You have been given a new heart. You have been cleansed and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a call to attain a righteous life so that you can draw near, but a call to realize the fullness of what has been accomplished for you in Christ Jesus. To see that you have been given a new heart. That your sins have been washed away. And that you can approach the throne of God in prayer with confidence because Jesus' perfect righteousness has been given to you through faith. It has been imputed to you. So Jesus' death both enables us to worship God through his perfect sacrifice and he is our motivation to worship God as the ultimate example of God's love for us. We have been invited into the family of God. We have been saved and delivered from sin that we might see the magnitude of his love for us and draw near to him in worship by both placing our hope in him and living our lives for him and his glory through obedience to Jesus. And I pray that the Spirit will open our eyes to all that Christ is for us this morning. Because if we're not drawn into worship and amazement at what God has done through Jesus Christ, we will fumble through life aimlessly chasing after things that will never satisfy. Things that will never bring hope or confidence or joy. We were created by God for worship. And if we're not worshiping Him, if we're not marveling at His love and putting our hope in all that He has promised, we will be worshiping something else, something less than God, something that cannot bring lasting peace or joy or satisfaction. Dry mouth today. God's purpose for your life is is not that you wake up every morning drifting aimlessly through the day, letting circumstances and schedules alone dictate what you do. He means for you to aim consciously at something significant for your days, to have a purpose for your life. And listen, you can be incredibly active and incredibly busy and yet still be aimless. The gauge is not how much you get done in a day, but what you are aiming at. What you are living for. Spending all your time and energy trying to get rich or trying to gain social status is incredibly time-consuming. It's not easy, but it's also entirely aimless. Because even if you achieve all that you desire, there is no life in those things. As D.L. Moody once said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. That stings a little bit. This is aimless. And aimlessness is synonymous with lifelessness. So if you're a really busy and driven person and you hear me talking about aimlessness, don't tune out. Because you can be the busiest, most driven person in the room and still be aimless. 
still be lifeless. And here's what I mean by that. For, for those of you who've been in my backyard, which is probably most of you, in the fall, you know that the leaf situation in my yard is off the chains, right? I still have a pile of leaves from two years ago in the front yard that I just added to this year, and it's enormous. There are leaves everywhere. And those leaves, they move around in my yard more than anything else. More than my kids, more than the 300 squirrels. They bounce and they tumble and they press up against the fence and they are blown back and forth by the wind, but they have no aim whatsoever. They are full of motion. They're really busy, but they are empty of life. They are quite literally dead leaves. God didn't create us in his image to be aimless, like leaves blown back and forth in the backyard of life. He created us to be purposeful, to have a focus and an aim for our days, to find what we were made for and to do it with all the power that God provides. As we saw already, we were created for worship and these next three verses paint a picture of what a life of worship looks like. And my hope is that God will use them to bring clarity of focus to the aim of our days, to help cast a vision for what our life can and should be as children of the Most High God. And what, what we're going to see is that when we draw near to God in worship, there is both an internal and an external effect on our lives. First in verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, hope isn't something that we can do with our hands and feet, right? You don't go into the garage or the office to hope. It's not done in the presence of others. This is a, an issue of the heart. Hope is internal. The call is to grab on to your hope, to hold fast to your hope, to be filled with hope in God because God has made promises to you and he is faithful to fulfill them. He has promised to empower you with his spirit, to work in you what is pleasing in his sight. He has promised to remember your sins no more. He's promised that we are being perfected through the sacrifice of Jesus. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. He has promised to bring good out of all of our pain and that we will be with him for eternity. And our God keeps his word. This is a call to faith to trust in who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ and to be moved to worship. And when we worship him for who he is and we see the magnitude of his glory and his power, we find hope that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. 
But even the amazing reality of the hope we have in Christ Jesus doesn't provide us with a sufficient focus for our day or for our year. God didn't create you to curl up on the couch in a Snuggie and hope in God all day. Right? That's not a good day. We're not called to be hopeful hermits. True hope in God always moves us to action, to faithfulness, to the call of God on our lives. If hope has no external effect on your life, it would be invisible to the world. It would bring no public glory to the power and wisdom and faithfulness of our God. So Christ-centered hope moves us to action. God created you first to hope in Him. And then to make that hope visible to the world by the effect that hope has on your life. It's like this chain reaction inside of our souls. Worship fuels our hope. And as hope in God saturates our lives, we are moved to respond. Hope has an effect on our lives. And that effect is given in verse 24. Here's the aim of your daily life that flows from drawing near to God and hoping in God. It says, let us consider how to stir up, how to stimulate one another to love and good works. There's your goal. There's the God-ordained game plan for your day. In a society ruled by individualism and personal faith, this verse drops a bomb on our understanding of what it means to live out our faith. True worship that fuels hope will lead you into deeper engagement in the lives of others. The text says, set your focus on helping others become loving people. Make your goal to stir up others toward love and good works. The aim of our lives that this verse is getting at is not just loving and doing good works, right? That's how many people talk about Christianity, like do good stuff, love people. But here it says, no, no. It's helping to stir up others to love and good works. Now, the implication is obviously that if others need stirred up, then we do as well. So, can you imagine what this community would look like if we all committed our energy and time and words and actions towards stirring each other up to love and good works? And it's really already happening in so many ways. But imagine if we as a community overflowed with a culture of other-focusedness. Or, as Keller says, self-forgetfulness. So, I want to dig in a little bit deeper on this verse because the actual meaning of the Greek here is hard to bring over into English. This word, consider, right? Let us consider how to stir up one another love and good works is used one other time in the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 1, where the writer says, consider Jesus. And what the word means here is, look at him, think about him, 
focus on him study him let your mind be occupied with him Jesus is the the direct object of the verb consider and the reason that it's important is because the grammar right the sentence structure here in verse 24 in the Greek is exactly the same the direct object of the word consider is one another The literal reading of this verse is consider one another toward the stirring up of love and good works. But that's terrible English, right? But that's exactly what it says. For the ease of English readers, they flipped it around, but we are not considering action. We are considering others. And my reasoning here for the Greek lesson is because We need to see this nuance in the original language to clarify the aim of our lives. God is literally calling us to consider one another, to look at one another, to study one another. Let your minds be occupied with one another, with the goal of this focus being thinking of ways to stimulate and stir up in them love and good works. As Paul says in Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And this is harder than it sounds, right? If you're anything like me, when the alarm goes off in the morning, your mind clicks into go mode. I start processing all the things that need done, all the situations that need attention, all the problems that need solved. But imagine with me for a second what our lives And what this community would look like if we resolved to wake up each morning and consider others. Maybe in our prayer time, to consider others. Someone other than ourselves, With the conscious goal and question being, what can I do today so that others will be stirred up to love and good works? How would making that change or making that your aim, change your marriage, right? Your wife is actually other. Well, you're actually one, kind of theologically, but she is an other person. If I didn't say that, somebody would have come and told me I was wrong. How would it change your friendships? How would it change the people that you work with if, if you're thinking about how to stir them up rather than thinking, why has nobody called me this week? Right? Raise your hand if you've done that. Nobody loves me and nobody's going to raise their hand to that. I get it. Yeah, that was a joke. Right? We do that. We don't get a call all day. It's like nobody cares about me. Nobody thinks about me. And then we just stew in our, you know, poutiness. It's like, who have you called? Who are you encouraging today? It's just a thought. Not asking, what can I get out of this relationship? Or how can I be served? But how can I stir up the fruit of the gospel in the lives of others? And it's not easy. It, it requires studying people, knowing them, investing in them and loving them well because everyone is different. Their needs, their personalities, their, their gifts, and these things are constantly changing. But this is the aim and the goal we have been called to as an act of worship to God, as an outflow and effect of the hope we have in Christ. And in verse 25, we're going to see how we go about achieving this aim. 
So, so 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then in 25, he gives us instruction on how. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, two things. First, don't neglect to meet together, right? Hard to encourage people if you don't ever see them. And second, encourage one another. It's very simple. And this is one of those verses that's been used time and again uh, in the church as an argument for regular attendance at Sunday worship, right? Low-hanging fruit. You really need to show up. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Come to church regularly. And I'm obviously a big believer in corporate worship. I think it's wonderful. It's a tremendous blessing. God calls us to gather in this way, but I don't think that that is what this verse is primarily highlighting. In context, the the kind of meeting together that this verse has in view seems to be one where there, there is mutual encouragement. Encouraging one another, it says. Verse 25 explicitly says, meeting together for the purpose of encouraging one another. And the one another implies that there is a mutuality in the encouragement. It's reciprocal among the people of God. Corporate worship, through the preaching of God's word and worshiping in song, is a crucial part of the life of faith, but it's not the best place for mutual encouragement. Right? I'm talking or someone's singing and you sit there. I, I'm sure I'm actually encouraged by you sitting there, so maybe we're mutually encouraged, but that's not what this text is talking about. The New Testament time and again calls us to be engaged and invested in people's lives in a way that is mutually encouraging, in a way that you are both pouring into one another's lives and being poured into by others, but that's hard to do in a room of 150 people. And this is why we talk so much about small groups here at Christ Church. This is why we're continually encouraging you to join a group and to actually show up. Not because we want to take up another night of your week or because we want to count you on our imaginary attendance sheet, but because the Christian life cannot be lived out in isolation. Because Christ came not only to unite us with God, but to unite us with one another for our good. For our mutual encouragement and growth. And I know that some of you are hesitant to join a small group. There's a certain level of fear associated with the idea of vulnerability. Or maybe you were burned in the past or had a bad experience in a small group. And I can't promise you you won't be stretched. I can't promise you you won't struggle some if you join a small group here. In some ways, I kind of hope that you, you are stretched and you do struggle because there is a healthy form of struggle that brings about sanctification, that shapes and molds us. But what I can promise is that the danger of not engaging the danger of not connecting on a personal level with the body of Christ can be far more devastating than what you're worried about might happen if you do. Thank you. Hebrews 3.12 outlines this danger. It says, Take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So when we isolate ourselves from the people of God, when we are either too afraid or too busy to engage in the lives of others, we open the door for sin. We open the door for the deceitfulness of sin to begin to harden our hearts. But when we gather together as broken, sinful, imperfect people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we enter into the God-ordained means for protecting us from the deceitfulness of sin. The Spirit moves powerfully when we gather as God's people to encourage, exhort, admonish, and stir up one another. This is what God wants for us. This is the aim and the focus of our lives. To look past our own interests and to realize that we, as the people of God, are one body, united by the blood of Christ and called to a life of worship, a life that reflects the love of Christ by pouring ourselves out for others just as Jesus poured himself out for us. It's really simple, right? Follow Jesus. And so my prayer for this community is that we would draw near to God in worship. That through the power of the indwelling Spirit, we would experience the assurance of faith that brings an unwavering hope in all that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And that this hope would transform the way that we live that we would be a people who invest deeply in the lives of one another, who set our minds on the health of one another, and who find tremendous joy in seeing the gospel flourish in the lives of one another. Let's pray together. Father God, make us a people who hold fast to the truth of people who have unwavering confidence in your promises, knowing that you are a faithful God. Let us not neglect the blessing that you have given to us in this fellowship of believers. That through the blood of Jesus, we have been united with you and united with one another. God, we pray that we would experience the fullness of this unity more and more as we look beyond ourselves to the needs of one another, stirring up one another to love and good works so that we might experience the joy of fellowship and the world might see your love through us.